0: amen good to see all of you this morning good to have you joining us from your homes this morning as well Isaiah chapter 52 beginning at verse 13 this morning Isaiah 52 beginning at verse 13 several months ago as Nicole and I were planning the services here at the Oasis we're going through obviously the book of Isaiah we came to this passage and She looked at me and she said, Jeff, this should be the passage that we do the Lord's Table communion with. We had it scheduled for next Sunday, August the 14th, and I looked at her and I said, yeah, you're right. If we're ever going to do the Lord's Table and we're going to connect it, if you will, to a passage of Scripture, there's no greater passage of Scripture in the Bible than Isaiah 52 and 53, and so we moved Communion up a week, we talked to Teresa and said, Teresa, could we move communion up a week? And she said, sure, that would be great. And so here we are in Isaiah 52 and 53 this morning, and we're going to end both of our services today by observing and celebrating our Lord. I believe that this passage of Scripture this morning that we are looking at is the pinnacle of the book of Isaiah. In fact, there are many expositors and And theologians and, and preachers down through even history who believe that the passage that you and I are looking at is not only the pinnacle of the book of Isaiah, it is the pinnacle of the Bible. It is the Mount Everest, if you will, of a holy scriptures. It's all holy. It's all great because it's all God's word. But there's always been something very special about the passage of scripture we're going to be looking at this morning. Who but God could save in such a way and triumph so gloriously as we're going to see here this morning. And we're going to look at the triumph of the suffering servant of God. And we've known and discovered throughout our study of the book of Isaiah that God calls us to be his servants and that God saw the nation of Israel, his people in the Old Testament, as his servants. And he told them, look... There's going to be times where, as my servants, you go through deep waters, and you go through flooded streams, and you go through raging fires as my people. But I will be with you, and I will be with you through all of that, and I will bring you out the other side. That's how even God viewed the exile of the people of God in the book of Isaiah. And then we have us today. We are the servants of God as well, New Testament Christians, called again to go through deep waters, flooded streams, and raging fires, knowing that God will be with us and will bring us through and bring us out the other side. But the ultimate servant, the ultimate servant of God has and always will be the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. He stands above all other servants of God. And if there's ever a passage of Scripture that honors the Lord, our God, for him being the servant of the Father. It's Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53, verse 12. Let's look at it this morning, beginning this passage with this declaration. The Bible says, look or behold or see, my servant will succeed. He will prosper. Right up front, because we're going to get to some verses that, again, even for us, it's like, wow, you know. Who but God could save in such a way as this and result in such triumph? So he starts out by reminding us, the servant of God, the ultimate servant of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, will succeed. He will prosper. And what's it mean? For Jesus to prosper and succeed? What does it mean for you and I to prosper and succeed? How do we measure success, if you will, as God's servants? Look over with me in chapter 53 at verse 10. And look at this phrase out of 53.10. The Lord's purpose will be accomplished through him. That's how you measure success and prosperity from God's point of view when it comes to his people, when it comes to even his son. How do you measure success? That you and I come to this earth and we carry out and fulfill the purpose that God created us for and brought us here for. That's success. See, success in God's eyes is not how the world views success and prosperity. It's not even how many in religion and how many in churches today measure success and prosperity. Success and prosperity before God is that God, you gave me life and you gave me a purpose with my life and I fulfilled that purpose and that's all God's looking for from all of us, is that we simply fulfill the purpose that God made us for and put us on this earth for. That's how he views success. And we know, then, that success and prosperity has nothing to do with Material prosperity, because Jesus wasn't materially prosperous. It had nothing to do with if, if we feel good all the time and we don't have any suffering and pain in our life, because as we're going to see again this morning, Jesus had plenty of suffering and pain in his life. But Jesus was successful in the Father's eyes because he fulfilled the purpose that God gave him here on this earth. Are you fulfilling the purpose for why God created you and put you here? In God's eyes, that's success. And then notice back in chapter 52, verse 13, he says, look, my servant will not only succeed, he will be elevated he will be acknowledged properly one day. He will be lifted high and greatly exalted. He will be celebrated, praised, worshipped, and glorified. That's the ultimate destiny of God's servant. We have an ultimate destiny as well, and it's a good one. It's a great one. It's a glorious one. We've got to keep that in mind as we embrace being God's servant and whatever that looks like, whatever purpose God has for us, that we embrace it. That's success in God's eyes. That's being prosperous in God's eyes because like the Lord, we have a great, glorious, and good future ahead of us. But before his exaltation came humiliation. Before his crown, there was his cross. And so notice in verse 52, verse 14, just as many were horrified by the sight of you, He was so disfigured, he no longer looked like a man or a human being. His form was so marred, he no longer looked human. Even as Christians, many times we we think of the Lord's suffering and and just the idea of him being nailed to the cross, but we have to understand that even before he got there, our Lord took on so much pain and so much torture and so much suffering that by the time they hung him on the cross, he didn't even look like a human being anymore. He had been beaten over and over and over again during all of his trials leading into the morning. And then they abused him by pulling out his beard and slapping him and spitting on him. And then he went through scourging where they used the Roman flagrum to literally rip out chunks of his back to where literally his internal organs would have been laid bare from the scourging that he went through. Even before he was hung on the cross, our Lord Jesus took upon so much suffering and pain and torture. And God is saying, you and I need to remember that as well. Because many times in our life, how we judge things both for us and for others, how we make determinations or come to the conclusions about things is that we take just a little slice of our life or the little slice of someone else's life and, and that's the conclusion, that's a determination, that's the sort of the final verdict we have on something or someone. And if that would have been done to Jesus, think how wrong everyone was if they would have come to the conclusion of, look at that poor man on the cross and all that he went through. Surely he doesn't have a good end at all. As one famous preacher many years ago said, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And God wants us to get that as well. That's why you and I need discernment when it comes to viewing our own life. Because if we would take a snapshot of Jesus at that moment, we would have said, God lost. God lost. God's weak. God's powerless. God's this. God's that. Look at this. Look at his son. Ah, but God said, be careful about appearances And be careful about coming to conclusions and decisions and determinations and all of that based on that little slice of something. Because that's not the end. And you and I have to do the same thing in our own life as his servants and in the lives of others, is we must be very careful of making those kind of conclusions and jumping to those kind of determinations because at that moment, it looked like all was lost and all was over. But Jesus also is giving us an example that you and I are to follow as well. Paul even said to the Philippians, for it is on, given to us by God on our behalf not only to believe in his son Jesus Christ, but to suffer for him as well. And even as Christians, we love, love, love talking about the glory that's going to come. And we love talking about eternity and heaven and all of its perfection and all of that. And we love talking about that future crown or crowns we're going to receive, but we don't want to deal with the cross. And yet the message of the Bible for all of God's followers is the cross for all of us, like it did Jesus, has to come before the crown. And Jesus even said, if you're going to be one of my disciples, you've got to be willing to take up your cross daily and follow me. Suffering comes before glory. And that's one of the things we learn even from the example of Jesus, not only from the words of Jesus, but even from the example of Jesus here on this earth. Because notice at the end of verse 15, It says one day he will startle, literally shake, and cause the nations of the world to tremble. Kings will be shocked by his exaltation. The one that was so humiliated, the one that didn't even look human anymore, is going to be exalted to the highest position of the universe one day. Oh, be careful, my friends. Who but God could save in such a way resulting in such triumph. That's why in chapter 53, the prophet says, who would have believed what we've just heard? That this is the way God chose to save the world? And this is the the suffering and the pain and and the burden, if you will, that God the Father placed upon his own dear son? When was the Lord's power revealed through him? Verse 1. In a sense, when God rolled up his sleeve to show us his muscle through Jesus while he was here on earth, when did that happen? Jesus didn't come into this earth as some powerful person in some powerful position. He came in as a baby. Think about that. You and I don't like to make ourselves vulnerable, and yet the Lord of glory... The one who created the universe and all who live in it made himself vulnerable by placing himself in the hands of human beings? (sighs) Then notice verse 2 of chapter 53. Jesus had very humble beginnings. He sprouted up like a twig before God, like a root out of parched soil. He had less than optimal conditions to grow up in. Joseph and Mary weren't, you know, movers and shakers. Jesus didn't have all the world could offer at that time. He grew up in a very humble and poor home. He grew up with not a lot of this world's goods. And he certainly never achieved any kind of power or position, if you will, as far as the world is concerned. It was never about appearance or externals with with Jesus. Notice it says in verse 2, he had no stately form or majesty that might catch our attention, no special appearance that we should want to follow him. Even though we live in a world where physical appearance is everything to so many people, God is saying, you realize that when people looked at Jesus, there was nothing special in his appearance. He had no, like, you know, magnetism. He he would not have been one of those people that would have walked into a room like this and would have turned everybody's head. Hollywood would not have been enamored with Jesus. There was nothing about him and the way he carried himself or his lifestyle that would have caused people in the world to go, wow. Wow. Nothing at all. He was very ordinary in his appearance and his external, which again is why God is saying, be careful (laughs) about judging by appearances and by externals and all the world's trappings because people just passed Jesus by because there was nothing externally, if you will, or in appearance that would have caused everybody to just stop. No. No. In fact, in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by people because Jesus did not represent the things that were important to the people of his day. His priorities were not their priorities. And so they didn't get caught up in who he was and what he was all about because he was always about just fulfilling the purpose that God the Father brought him here for. He was experienced with pain and acquainted with illness, People even hid their faces from him. He was despised. He was considered insignificant. People wrote Jesus off, just like some have written you off and maybe how you have written others off. Because again, for us in this world we live in, it's so hard not to get caught up in appearances and expectations and externals and stuff and the way the world judges greatness and all of that. Jesus had none of it. None of it. But he was the servant of God. And as the servant of God, he went through every bit of torture and pain and suffering And he did it for us. He didn't do it for himself. He did it for us. Everything that Jesus endured on this earth as the Son of God, he did it for you and for me. And I truly believe if you or me would have been the only person on earth that Jesus would have went through everything just for us. That's how valuable, and that's how much you are loved by God. Notice verse 4 of chapter 53. And as you go down through these verses, contrast the word he with the word are. Are. Because these verses are reminding us Jesus didn't do all this for himself. Everything that he did was vicarious. He did it as our substitute. He did it in our place. And so that's what the Bible teaches. He lifted up our illnesses. He carried our pain. Even though we thought he was being punished, attacked by God and afflicted for something that he had done, he was perfect. He was wounded because of our rebellious deeds, crushed because of our sins. As Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It was all for us. It was all for you. It was all for me. Everything that he took upon himself, he did out of his love for you and me everything, to the point where he didn't even look human, to the point where he was marred more than any man. He was so disfigured by the beatings and the torture and the floggings and the crucifixion. All for you and for me. And not just some of us. But verse six reminds us, all of us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Paul says. And even here in Isaiah, Isaiah writes, all of us have wandered off like sheep. Each of us had strayed off on his own path, but the Lord caused the sin of all of us to attack him. Jesus didn't just die for some. He didn't just die for the elect. He died for every human being who will ever live. And think about it. It wasn't just some of our sin. It was all of our sin of all that we're ever going to do in our lifetime. It was all dumped on Jesus at one time. Not just one of us, but all of humanity's sin on him so that any who wanted to be saved could be saved all of it, all of it as you sit here, and as I stand here, all of our sin, past, present, and future, all of it was poured on to Jesus, and he was our substitute so that you and I would never have to pay one second for any sin that we've ever committed against God, any failure, any fault, any of it at all. It was all placed upon him, and he took it all. He took it all so that you and I never have to pay for anything. All we have to do by faith is receive the gift that God gives us in his son Jesus Christ because he did it all for us. And now you can begin to understand why God despises and hates religion because religion is man's prideful way of trying to gain his own way to God rather than receiving what God alone could do through his suffering servant son, Jesus Christ. And it was all there. And you don't have to pay for it, and I don't have to pay for it. We'll never have to be punished for it, You'll never have to be punished for it. Jesus took it all, every last sin, upon himself. He not only did it for us, but he humbly accepted it. Look at verse 7. He was treated harshly and afflicted, but notice this phrase, and you're going to see it again at the end of verse 7. He did not even open up his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughtering block, like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not even open up his mouth. Why? Because he was here to fulfill the purpose of God. It was a service that he was performing. It was a service laid on him by his own father. It was a service that would bring about our redemption and forgiveness of sins and being set free for all of eternity and living in glory. That's why he didn't open up his mouth. It wasn't because what was going on with him was just and right. It wasn't. He hadn't done anything to deserve this. But he closed his mouth and accepted it humbly. And folks, can I just say that Jesus leaves us a very powerful example. He's always done it, but he especially does it in our day and age where in this age, can I just say that I get so tired of all this social media stuff and where we live in a world today, even amongst Christians, where every Christian thinks they have to comment about every little thing and they can't keep their mouth shut, that here Jesus, the Son of God, the one who was perfect and sinless, is standing there and he's taking it all and he doesn't open up his mouth one time. We gotta learn to be the servants of God and to accept sometimes the things that come our way and the things that are happening and not feel like we have to open up our mouth and make a comment about it all the time. Cause Jesus did not open up his mouth. Cause he was the, here as the servant. He wasn't here to assert his rights. He wasn't here to take up an offense for himself. He wasn't here for himself. He even said, "The Son of Man comes to lay down his life. I come to give my life a ransom for many. That's why I'm here. So I'm keeping my mouth shut." And what Jesus did, it was very powerful and effective. Again, maybe the world would look at what was going on there and go, what's that ever going to accomplish? Oh, but look at verse 10 of chapter 53. This act of sacrifice was the will of God. And through this act and will of God, God was going to bring about the righteousness of those who believed and trusted in his Son. Though the Lord desired to crush him and make him ill, once restitution is made, oh, he will see descendants and enjoy long life. Jesus doesn't remain dead. Friday's there, but Sunday's coming. And the Lord's purpose will be accomplished through him. Notice the end of verse 11. My servant will acquit many. In other words, through his sacrifice, through his service, he will be able to make many right. Not all right. Because God gives us all as human beings a free choice. He will not force his son or his salvation upon us. He gives us that right and that privilege to choose. But for all who choose to believe and trust in Jesus and what Jesus did on that cross and in his subsequent resurrection, oh, it's powerful and effective enough to save to make us right before God, to make all of us who are sinners, who are dead in our trespasses and sins, to make us alive with God. That's powerful. And if you're here and you're saved, you know how powerful and effective it is. You know what a change and what a transformation Jesus Christ can bring about in your life where you, when you turn your life over to him. Amen? For he carried their sins. He alone bore the heavy load of every sin that every human being will ever commit. And we could stop there. But God's got one more thing. And it ties back into the very first thing we looked at back in chapter 52, verse 13. And that is that because my son did what he did, his destiny is honor and glory forever. He will be elevated. He will be lifted high. He will be greatly exalted. Verse 12 of chapter 50 through three. I will assign him a portion with the multitudes. He will divide the spoils of victory with the powerful. He will be willingly submitted to death and was numbered with the rebels and lifted up the sin of many and intervened on behalf of the rebels. That means that there's coming a time where there is no one in the universe higher than Jesus. There is no one in the universe greater than Jesus. I like the way Paul says it best. He said, because Jesus humbled himself and became obedient even unto death, the death of a cross, God the Father has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Amen. (laughs) Who but God? Who but God could save in such a way, resulting in such triumph? Would you have chosen to save the world that way? I wouldn't have. Would you have chosen to give your son? I wouldn't have. But that was what God did. And so God is saying to all of us, learn from my servant. Learn so much from my servant, my son. Because yes, he is glorified. He occupies the highest and greatest position in the universe and will forever. But before that day, he humbled himself, took upon himself the form of a servant, wrapped himself in humanity, and came to fulfill the purpose that God placed him here for. And God is saying to each of us today, are you willing to be my servant? Are you willing to fulfill the purpose that I have placed you here for? And my purpose today for all of us, including myself, it is that as we experienced our time of worship and sang those songs, and as we dove into this passage of Scripture today, that every last one of us, including all of you who are watching this morning or at some time in the future, that we would all leave here with a little bit more appreciation for Jesus. That we'd leave here a little bit more in awe and wonder of our God, and that we would all leave here a little bit more appreciative of the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. Because as we sung just a few minutes ago, he deserves it all. He did this for us. And if you ever begin in your life to doubt your worth and your value and how much God loves you, turn back to Isaiah 52 and 53 and read that and let God remind you he did it for you and he did it for me. I'm going to ask us to bow our heads and I'm going to close in prayer. and Nicole and the worship team are going to come. I'm going to go ahead and ask Teresa and her team to get in place in just a moment. After I close in prayer, we're going to go into our time of embracing the Lord's table. And as they pass out these elements to each of us and we take them in our hands, may we... May we appreciate and admire and adore our Lord Jesus more than we ever have. Lord, we thank you today for loving us so much that, God, you went through such horrific suffering and pain and torture. But, Lord, it was so much more than just the physical suffering and pain and torture you took upon your own back the sin of the entire universe of all time, a load that we can't even begin to imagine. I can't even begin to imagine, God, you taking all of my sin upon yourself, past, present, and future, much less every other human being who's ever lived. But you did it. You did it. And you carried it. And you made the sacrifice that was essential and necessary for us to be made right with you because you are a holy God. And you just can't let sin go. Your holiness demands that you do something. And instead of, Lord, us having to go through The pain and the suffering and the torture and the punishment for our own sin, you placed it all on your son, Jesus, the magnificent servant who took it all and did not open his mouth. Oh God, may we appreciate you more than we ever have. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Once you get the